0: What if you could prevent something bad from happening? When it comes to epilepsy, you never know when a seizure could happen next. The ability to predict an incoming seizure can be a game-changer. Today, we have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Jean Paz about her incredible work aimed at seizure prediction and prevention. This is RadioBio.
1: Don't know much biology. Welcome to Radio Bio. I'm your host, Jackie Shea. And I am
0: Sininta Pertiwi.
1: Today we're joined by Dr. Jean Paz from uh, UCSF and Gladstone. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about what you
2: study. So I study uh, how the brain generates seizures uh, in which part of the brain, so which cell types and which neural circuits um, generate seizures Um, So what is a
1: seizure exactly? I mean, I know I've seen lots of seizures in TV shows and stuff, and it always looks like someone's convulsing. I mean, what is exactly happening when someone has a seizure?
2: So in general, our brain is kind of chaotic. Uh, So the normal brain activity, for example, if you look at our cerebral cortex now, it would show a very desynchronized EEG, right, where the cells fire kind of randomly here and there whereas during seizures all the cells you know start firing at the same time it's like they talk all at the same time and they don't listen to each other anymore serious miscommunication it's a miscommunication exactly Um, so seizures are all about a threshold anyone I think anyone can have a seizure Uh, and that threshold you know how easy is it to the, for the environment to induce a seizure in your brain really depends on your brain right mm-hmm. and we all have a different threshold uh, for seizure initiation and i think that threshold depends on the brain state and it's not the same during sleep during wakefulness during activity um, so yeah this the seizures are basically an abnormal activity in a population of cells and is the
1: population of cells, like it, like it is it just in one particular part of the brain or is this happening all over the brain?
2: The big problem in the field is that for most of the seizures, we don't know, you know which cells are key in generating, maintaining, and terminating the seizures. So my research, as well as you know, many other labs, focus on understanding which cells are responsible Uh, for the generation of seizures, and which cells are actually spreading the seizures across the brain, and which cells are terminating the seizures. So we are trying to understand that. And the hope is that if we do understand these basic questions, uh, then we can find better treatments for stopping or preventing seizures.
0: So seizures and epilepsy, are those the same things, or how do they
2: relate to each other? So seizures are not epilepsy. There is a big difference. Um, anyone can have a seizure. For example, you know, if uh, someone falls or has you know a tra- traumatic brain injury, they might have a seizure. But if, if the seizures are recurrent, so if they repeat, right, if, you have, if a patient has more than or if a person has more than two seizures or three seizures, uh, we can call them epileptic seizures. So epileptic seizures are recurrent and spontaneous. Anyone can have a seizure, but not anyone can have epilepsy. Mm. Epilepsy is really, you know, a, a word that we use for repetitive recurrent seizures. So can somebody who just
1: had, who it's just starts having seizures become epileptic? Like is that sort of yes. one of the ways that you can become epileptic? Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And uh, there is this idea in the field that the more you have seizures, the higher is the likelihood for developing epilepsy. And for
0: different types of epilepsy, there's different types of treatments as well I'm right and we
2: still need to find those for many epilepsies there are no efficient treatments so many epilepsies are drug resistant actually mm-hmm. and pay there there is nothing for some patients that can help them yeah. so feel, what
0: what are the challenges of trying to define a treatment for an epilepsy
2: seizure I mean the challenge is that epilepsy is a network problem right so when we catch it in other words when we see the seizure it's often already spread. And the seizure probably starts from like a small group of cells in a brain area, right? But it spreads so fast uh, because neurons talk to each other very fast, right? It takes a a millisecond or two for one neuron to transfer the information to the next one. So at the moment where we see, you know, when we see the seizure, for example, with the G electrodes, uh, the seizure is already there. So we cannot catch the beginning. And not being able to catch the beginning, we, it's very hard to know which cells are initiating the seizures. Because once we see the seizures, they're already often all over the place in the brain, right? So I think the problem we are facing in the field is that it's very hard to find the key cells uh, and the choke points. But this is, uh, these are the kind of questions that the optogenetic tools, for example, could help us to address. And my lab as well as other labs are actively working on this. I have very high hopes for the epilepsy field in general to you know, stay on the positive side. Um, the high hopes are related to the fact that seizures... They start, they spread, and they end. So for scientists like me, you know, we, we have, uh, we know what phases we can study, right? The fact that the seizures are abnormal activities that start at some point, spread, and end within seconds or minutes, that allows the scientists to understand which cells initiate, which cells spread, and which cells end, or what types of activities uh, and what types of cells are responsible for you know, initiation, spread, and termination. And this is a big advantage, I think, in the epilepsy field. Would you consider it a disease? Or is
1: it, I mean, how does that... It's a
2: neurological disorder. Mm -hmm. Epilepsy can be caused by a variety of things. So it can be caused by genetic mutations. It can be caused by brain injuries like stroke or uh, trauma. For example, people uh, with traumatic brain injuries... For example soldiers right who were exposed to a traumatic brain injury or uh, the concussions right uh, this traumatic events can lead to epileptic seizures over time, and there are also genetic mutations. For example, in the Dravet syndrome, 70% of patients with the Dravet syndrome uh, have a mutation in a gene that encodes for a sodium channel, Uh, and the Dravet syndrome is uh, one of the most severe childhood epilepsies associated with epileptic seizures, autism, and uh, sudden death.
1: And the sodium channels are important because they're responsible for helping with the neurons communicating
2: with each other, right? Exactly. So the neurons communicate with each other mainly by firing action potentials. Mm -hmm. And uh, the action potentials, it's how the neurons, so the nerve cells, express themselves.
1: Action potential is a pretty cool feature of animal physiology. The neurons in our brain rapidly exchange charged ions, like sodium and potassium, across their membranes creating a voltage-like electricity. This electricity moves from neuron to neuron until it reaches its destination to move that part of the body. So the next time you reach for your coffee, realize that action potential is creating this electric current that tells your arm to pick up that mug, all from negative sodium and positive potassium switching places
2: through channels in your neural membranes. And the sodium channels are exactly the channels that cause the action potentials. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's thought, for example, that in the Dravet syndrome, a loss of a, the sodium channel function in the inhibitory cells is responsible for a reduced inhibition in the brain, which then induces, um, leads to an imbalance between excitation and inhibition in the brain, which can cause seizures so the different areas of the brain are not going to communicate with each other Mm. correctly Mm. and so when incoming information from outside for example and incoming sensory information Mm. might induce a seizure
1: so you know you were saying how this is a really complex field how did you sort of come to being immersed in this study how did you come to be where you are today
2: So I was always um, fascinated by how the brain works, because the human behavior depends so much on the brain states, right? Um, And how does the brain state switch from sleep, to wakefulness, uh, to exploration, to uh, seizures? Uh, and what was fascinating to me is understanding, you know, the sudden switching brain states and what controls that. So for my master's degree, I actually joined a lab uh, that was exploring this kind of questions in vivo, which means in, human, in uh, alive animals. And they were trying to understand uh, in what brain states do the seizures occur. And for example, those kind of studies led to a better understanding of the brain states in which the seizures, absence type seizures are more likely to occur. For for example, they happen more when the child is drowsy and bored Mm. (laughs) uh, and not when the child is playing soccer, for example. So it's like
1: something about the way their brain state is in allows the seizures right. to happen. exactly.
2: There, were, like, there was this explosion in the development of tools in neuroscience that now allow us actually to, to interrogate the activity of one specific cell type in one particular brain region mm-hmm. and to say, you know, to interrogate in real time whether this cell or that cell uh, is causally involved in wakefulness or in seizures or in sleep. So those tools are, for example, optogenetic tools. So mm-hmm. those were uh, a revolution in neuroscience, and they were um, mainly developed yeah, by uh, Ed Boyden and Carl Dizeroth at Stanford. And those tools allow us to express light-sensitive proteins in specific cell types and then control the activity, so the firing or the way these cells talk in vivo, in real time. So, for example, if you are uh, hypothesizing that uh, hyperactivity of the cell—you know, let's say you you found a nerve cell in a deep brain structure that talks too loud, right? It fires many action potentials, and you're you want to test whether that activity is causally involved uh, in a seizure. Well, what these tools allow you to do is to shut down the activity, so silence the cell. So. Uh, tell it to shut up, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right, and see if that's sufficient to stop the seizure. And if yes, then you can conclude that the activity, so the the fact that the cell was like yelling or screaming, was actually causally involved in the seizure. Uh, And this is what these tools allow us to do. And before we had these tools, uh, there was no way to control the activity of cells, you know, how loud the cells are, basically, uh, in real time. And we had to use pharmacology, but the pharmacology can change brain states, and then you don't know whether, you know, it's very hard to say, okay, it's this cell and not that cell. It's this type of loud behavior, not that type of loud behavior that actually leads to seizures. So
0: from the work in your lab, what questions have you been able to answer using these new now available technologies?
2: So, in my lab, we, yeah, we are developing approaches to detect the seizures uh, before they start or as they start by reading the electroencephalography activity in real time. We developed this closed loop, so, real time interrogation of the uh, necessity of certain cells in seizures. Dr. Paz is utilizing this method
0: she mentioned electroencephalography. This method measures the electrical activity of the brain cells using electrodes that are placed on the scalp surface. If you've ever seen a movie or TV show where they put some sort of helmet or headband with wires on someone's head, that's kind of what electroencephalography looks like. It measures the electricity transmitted by the many neurons as they talk to each other. What Dr. Paz is doing with electroencephalography is detecting in real time which cells are reacting before a seizure.
2: And the hope is that we will find which cells are sufficient to silence before the seizures, uh, in order to prevent the seizures. So we're developing tools in my lab to kind of predict the future, wow. <laughs> and uh, and prevent the bad things. So predict the seizures. Uh, that would be my dream, you know, to be able to predict the seizures a few minutes before they start, and then prevent that by only targeting. Uh, this loud cells without targeting the entire brain, which is what currently, you know, the pharmacological treatments do. Yeah, you, like, and that's you specific- why they have side effects you
1: can pinpoint it with the light with the lasers exactly to, like just numbing everything right wow. and I think
2: the specificity mm-hmm. uh you know of silencing only very briefly you know this very loud cells the bed cells <laughs> I mean that's my dream because that would allow us I think to prevent the secondary effects that many of the current drugs have and it seems really not invasive you know it seems like it's like the most
1: kind of easiest not easiest but you know like it seems like a not dangerous to the patient
2: so we do this in mice and rats and for now we don't have tools to to express the light sensitive channels in the human brain mm-hmm. but this is related to the gene therapy and there is a lot of progress in the field and i'm hopeful you know that within the next i don't know decade these tools will be uh, will be useful and safe in human patients. Of course, there is a long road uh, before we get there. But um, while before we get there, you know, we can collect data from mice and rats to see what's sufficient to stop seizures in the rodent models. And in the epilepsy field, we are kind of lucky to have many good models, uh, you know, of mice and rat models that phenocopy the human seizures. So in the mice and rats, the same brain regions will be involved in the seizure generation as in the human patients. That's what we assume, <laughs> even though the brains are different.
1: I'm like, I'm just amazed. I think that's really cool that you're like predicting seizures. <laughs> I didn't even know Thank that was. You. It sounds like you know magic,
2: but it's science. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because uh, according to a recent survey, Apparently, you know, the, the biggest concern, the most major concern for the patients and their families is the unpredictable nature of seizures. You know, the fact that they they don't know when the seizure is going to occur, and that can be very isolating mm-hmm. for people. Right, they can't drive. They you can't know, they drive, can't they can't, things, like, yeah. go out, right? By themselves, right. So if there was, you know, a device that could predict seizures, that would be life-changing mm-hmm. for people. so many people, people. because you could prevent, you know, uh, it could save your life. For example, if you could predict that you're going to have a seizure in 10 minutes, you could take the medication then, right then, right? Instead of taking it every day and having this major side effects and staying in your bed. Mm -hmm. So it could be life-changing. And I know it's not just my lab. Many labs in the field are actively working on Uh, finding the key signatures um, that might allow us to predict the seizures before they occur. So for the
0: mice model that you did, how early can you, have you seen in your results, how early can you predict a seizure is going to happen in the mice? And do you think that can be improved in terms of, um, you know, we can do it, we can predict it much faster or we can predict it
2: Yes, definitely. So uh, it depends on types of seizures. Uh, So for example, we're currently working on a seizure type. Uh, We find that some seizures are preceded by a change in the brain state up to four minutes before the seizure. And in other cases, uh, we couldn't find change in the brain state before the seizures occurred, but then we were able to detect the seizure as soon as it started and disrupted within less than half a second. The seizure then did not occur anymore, right? So we can still talk about prevention. I mean, it was disrupted at at its onset.
1: That's. I (laughs) mean, that's pretty amazing. I mean, prevention is something that needs to be you know needs to be more prolific as opposed to curing right and so I think the fact that that's what you're targeting is preventing it from happening in the first place is amazing
0: adding the element of predictability yeah especially for the families I would guess it would really
1: help the freedom that it brings right
0: um are there any common misconceptions about seizures or epilepsy that you you hear often
2: out there uh, I think that the answer is yes. So, people, there is a lot of stigma associated with epilepsy. People don't want to talk about it. They are ashamed. But I think that uh, the work, for example, the work that uh, Cure or you know, Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy or Uh, the Epilepsy Foundation, the American Epilepsy Society. So they, they have a campaign for increasing the epilepsy awareness, which I think is very, very important, you know, to teach people what seizures are and how to save someone's life if they're having a seizure. And I think this education and just providing the knowledge to teach people is critical. How do you save someone's life if they're having a seizure? I was
1: wondering that too. (laughs) I'm not sure I know.
2: Well, it depends on the types of seizures, right? And again, I'm not a doctor, but (laughs) uh, I'm just a scientist. But um, for example, uh, dogs, dogs are very, very, I mean, dogs can save lives. And uh, for example, you know, this is something that I don't really understand, like how this happens, but dogs can feel seizures and uh, they can save your life. For example, they can stand in front of the child who is going to have a seizure and prevent the child from falling on the floor and having a concussion. For example, you know, sometimes parents who can recognize that the child is having some aura or, you know, before the seizure, they can uh, hold the child or, you know, make, make sure that the child does not fall on the floor or... Uh, hit their head on the sink right so if you can uh, sense some difference in the person's behavior and know that they are gonna have a seizure you can save their lives and uh, dogs have been amazing at this but dogs who, who live with the patient Not just any dog. (laughs) Not just any dog, yeah. Yeah. So there are dogs that are trained in detecting seizures. It's unknown how the dogs feel the seizure coming, but they know the behavior of the person they live with, right? And they can sense the change in the behavior, and they are trained to, like, Mm -hmm. come in front of you and prevent you from falling. Wow. Wow. That just, like, warms my heart.
0: (laughs) I I wonder if that means other types of animals might also be able Mm. to be trained. Maybe you know, because like horses. Of their, I know yeah. horses.
1: There's like therapy horses that can do stuff like that too. Because
0: they have a probably a sharper sensory mm. sensing.
2: <laughs> yeah, it always amazed me. Yeah, someone I know was telling me he. So actually, a neighbor of mine uh, uh, was telling me that um, he, he always knew as a child when his mom was going to have a seizure, mm. the way she would look at him. He knew that his mom was going to have a seizure, and he would. He knew how to stop it and uh he was the cure actually because so he would run to his mom he would hug her and this hug would prevent the seizure and she would hold him like really hard and so each time i say this it makes me cry but isn't it like very touching yes Yes. yeah (laughs) it's really so he could feel you know his mom was gonna have a seizure and he just by hugging, so he never left his mom's side, actually, yeah. as a child, oh. <laughs> because just by the hug, you know, she would hug him, like, very strong, so sometimes it would be very painful, mm. but he knew he was helping his mom. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. Oh, my
1: goodness. Mm. Wow, that's so, there's still so much we don't understand, and it's so wonderful that, like, you're one of many brains out there that are, are thinking deeply about how we can move forward with that because it is such a huge problem well you are a champion for you know dedicating your life to finding prevention cure and you know figuring out all of the different ways that this is happening to to people and so that's a wonderful cause and a wonderful life that you're living and it's a real honor that we've got to have an opportunity to chat with you today so i want to thank you so much for joining us
2: Thank you so much for listening to me. And it's an honor to be here. So thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you.
0: This episode was produced by Lily Pennington. The interviewers were Sininta Pertiwi and Jackie Shea. Edited by Jackie Shea with artwork by Kinsey Brock.
1: Radio Bio is produced by graduate students at the University of California, Merced. Support for Radio Bio comes from the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group, the School of Natural Sciences, and the Graduate Division at UC Merced. You can help support Radio Bio's mission of increasing scientific literacy in California's Central Valley and beyond by donating at giving.ucmerced.edu slash radio bio. Find out more about our mission, events, and podcasts at www.radiobio.net.